The opinions expressed on this show are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily represent those of Funeral Radio's management or sponsors. Welcome to the Green Burial Radio Program, a show preparing your funeral home for the growing number of families wanting more eco-friendly funeral services. Brought to you by Funeral Radio. And now your hosts, Joe Sehe and Sherry Wolf. Welcome to the Green Burial Radio Program. I am Sherry Wolf, and I'm here with Joe. How are you doing, Joe? Hey, Sherry. Great, and our uh, guest today is Shara Barrett. She is a funeral director and owner of A Sacred Moment in the state of Washington. And we are here today to talk again, actually, about home funerals. And we thought today we would touch on some of the practical issues involved in working with families for home funeral vigils. So welcome, Shar. Thank you, Sherry. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, well, I know there's a, a lot that we want to cover today and um, a lot of different aspects for us to talk about, but I thought maybe we could just sort of start with some of the basics, um, some from the perspective of the family and certainly some from the perspective um, of the funeral director and, and the funeral home and the staff, and I thought maybe we could even just start a little bit about, um, I know you've been doing home funerals for quite a while. And maybe you could start with even some of the concerns initially that the funeral directors seem to typically have when a family is interested in something like this. Sure. Um, the uh, main concerns that I have often uh, heard from funeral directors that seem to come to the surface uh, right away is course, uh, what funeral directors are so good at, and that is the care of the body and how, um, sort of how to orchestrate that in a different way than what they are typically accustomed to, given that most funeral directors, of course, are going to be caring for a body in their own facility, um, whether that care is simply bathing and dressing the body because the family's chosen to not have the body embalmed, uh, or whether it would obviously include the procedure of embalming. And so, uh, given the fact that there is um, a lot of uh, experience and knowledge and um, uh, a lot of practical information already out there relative to embalming, um, oftentimes the, the notion of going the other direction becomes a very sort of scary process um, to consider. Um, and so things that tend to come up are, uh, you know, issues with how do I set the features? Uh, how do I create the, uh, the memory picture that we've all been taught in mortuary science school to try to um, help uh, a family have the most ex- uh, experience, have the, the best experience possible when they're saying goodbye to their loved one. And oftentimes what I have found is that when talking with funeral directors, I need to remind them that they're really 
having to sort of shift their paradigm. And what I mean by that is the fact that the expectation that we as funeral directors place upon this particular moment in our work and in our service um, is something that we need to actually set aside because as I discussed in the last call that we had with um, uh, talking about our role as funeral directors, we really want the family to make that choice as to what it is that's important to them. And what I have learned over the years as a funeral director and as a home funeral guide is that when I truly set aside my own expectations and deeply listen to what the family's expectations are, I often find that, honestly, there's far less expectation on the part of a family. Yeah. How, how, how do you think this came about? I'm, I'm curious because funerals were in the home uh, up until the mid-20th century, so, and features were set. You know, how did funerals, all the funeral directors, become so concerned about this body sort of out of their care or in the home? When you know, embalming was done in the home, uh, I, I mean, obviously we're talking about more natural modes of body prep, but how do you think that came about? Um, You know, I think it really was probably an evolution that came out of uh, mortuary science training and and the idea that, again, that, that memory picture of what so many funeral directors and embalmers are trying to accomplish... Um, because they very much, of course, um, take pride in their work and they want the, the um, final effects of embalming and feature setting and dressing and cosmetizing to be their best work. And in doing that, they have gone down the road of, of trying to perfect, if you will, that image when, in fact, many families, you know, let's face it, we're not all perfect. <laughs> you know, we're all human. And, um, you know, we all have our flaws. And, and even though we want to airbrush all these things out and amazing what, you know, digital imagery can do on high-definition TV these days, we're all still human. And so we all have a very natural look to ourselves that oftentimes um, becomes lost as the, uh, actually the perfection, if you will, of that image has sort of taken over. Um, So I don't know if that's addressed the question, Joe, or if you have other thoughts about it, but that's sort of where my sense of how that has evolved, um, you know, where that's come from. And um, so I'd be curious if you have any other... Well, it's, it, what, what comes up for me is, 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 is really something we talked about last week, which is this idea of, of the ritual being cleaned up, sanitized, in, in, in mm-hmm. different, that's the word, to where it, it, it has to be perfect. And, 
you know, I think about funerals and I think about weddings the same way where people want to control things and really what comes through that matters is I think the authenticity and um, I, 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 I think I told you I was surprised to hear a, a priest uh, not allow for a eulogy at a mass because it was sort of clunky and it wasn't controllable and I, I know we really want to control uh, ritual oftentimes in a way that takes people out of it. it. It doesn't allow us to participate. That is one of the great things we keep hearing about uh, green and home funerals where people, funeral directors who are present, describe how meaningful the services are because people are allowed to do certain things and you know provide meaning. But I think that's uh, it increasingly be seen uh, that, that, that these little gestures really make a difference. And they matter to families for a long time because they're allowed to, you know, be involved and, and, and oftentimes do incredibly cathartic things for their families. Absolutely. You know, I, I, I recall one of the first experiences I had uh, with a home funeral um, as a very young and, and um uh, naive funeral director myself and and hearing um, response of, of a family actually not the family member but a, a fellow colleague in funeral service when I explained to him that in this particular situation we uh, were not able to bring the casket all the way into the doorway of um, this particular family's home. They lived in an apartment and literally the doorway just wasn't wide enough for us to get the casket through. And there was a breezeway outside the door, the front door of the apartment uh, that the family lived in. And we fashioned a setup where we created a screen and we had a um, uh, you know, and so what we essentially ended up having to do is have the casket uh, be set outside of the the front doorway of the house now, or the apartment, I should say. And um, the family all gathered; they all participated in um, transporting their loved one's body from the back bedroom of this apartment through the front door, and then placed their loved one's body in that casket. And as I said, we had it screened off and, you know, so that we had privacy, you know, that was certainly not a passerby wouldn't have even known what was going on. And when I explained what the necessity had to be for that particular situation, the funeral colleague was absolutely appalled at that notion. And I was somewhat struck by that, that they were so appalled. But I've learned over the years that part of that is because our training and our background is such that um, we wouldn't ever imagine a family being in that situation and, and seeing it as something actually almost disrespectful, whereas the family saw it completely different. The family saw it as this is the last loving gesture we can do for our loved one and how wonderful that we've created this, this um, you know, creative outcome to, 
to where we are able to lay our loved one in the casket. And, you know, the fact that it had to be outside the doorway and in a breezeway meant nothing to them. They, that, that completely was, was of no consequence to them. What mattered was what they were doing to care for their loved one's body. And that's the kind of um, example that I often will use when talking about what's our expectation versus the family's expectation, which is why it's so important to so deeply listen to what matters for them. Yeah, it's a perfect example. It all comes down to expectations, as you and I, Shar, have, have spoken about, and mm-hmm. constantly remembering that we need to focus on the expectation of that family. Yep. And, uh, and that, that, also, um, that also includes, of course, as, as you and I have talked about before, the appearance. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the common questions, in fact, that you would get, for example, from either funeral directors or possibly funeral guides um, when it comes to some of those specifics, I know we've talked about it, but in, in dealing with appearance issues and, and how they may change gradually um, sure, over sure. time, yeah. what are common so, questions you get? The common questions that I tend to uh, be asked are, well, how do you handle the mouth closure? Um, how, um, uh, how do you uh, make sure that the eyes, the eyes are closed? Um, how do you deal with purge, um, yeah, potential, you know, potential purge? Um, and oftentimes what I find is, is that um, there is um, uh, a simple solution, obviously, for the, the closing of the eyes and the mouth. That is the fact that we let nature do its best work, which is that rigor mortis will set in and in this case, rigor mortis is our friend because it actually allows for that mouth and the muscles around the jaw and the mouth to help to keep the mouth closed. And simply using a uh, cotton scarf um, and something we've started using very effectively in the last uh, year is um, actually a uh, strap that's similar to what you use um, for bed-bound patients that have a catheter. It's it's actually a a leg strap uh, that goes around the leg that holds the catheter tube. And Hmm. because that that strap is elastic and it also has a Velcro end to it, we're able to cinch the jaw, the the underside of the chin and the top of the head very tauntly. And, um, you know, it looks respectable for the time that it needs to be on the, you know, the the head um, just until rigor sets in. And uh, it's worked uh, quite quite wonderfully for us that way. And oftentimes what we find, depending on, of course, the musculature of each person, is that we have um, uh, a situation where the um, uh, the mouth may, in fact, um, come slightly open, maybe on the second end of the second day or the third day. And that's not an uncommon thing to have happen. Um, often it, it may only be a quarter of an inch. And I can, again, remember being appalled by that in the past when, in fact, families um, 
often would say, you know, it's it's nice to see his his teeth one last time, or <laughs> uh, you know, I I almost see my loved one smiling, you know. So there's there's many kinds of um, circumstances, again, where those expectations are again our own and not those of the family. Sure. Now, can I ask, many times when you're talking to a family before the death, do you, um, do you let them know that at the time of death, when they call, that many times you might have them start to implement some of these things? Absolutely. We tend to, if at all possible, we really try to meet with families in advance of the death to help to educate them about what they should be expecting um, and how the um, process typically will go so as to, you know, help alleviate any concerns or fears. Because for many, many families, I would say the vast majority, they've never done this before. And so... Uh, we will often recommend that families uh, try to close their loved one's mouth and eyes, um, you know, as, as um, shortly after death as they feel comfortable doing so. And that many times, uh, once again, they're sort of knowledgeable about what the process is, it may be several hours before the family actually calls us uh, to come to the home and help to uh, bathe and, and dress the body and bring the dry ice and all that will be required. And that if we just simply have the family uh, take care of, you know, the light touch of the eyelids to, to help encourage the eyes to close and the eyelids uh, to be closed, and then the closing of the mouth if just those two things are addressed by the family, um, many times that's all that's necessary um, before we may show up several hours later. And, um, and then the natural uh, care of the body that occurs by us bathing the body and and moving the body side to side, uh, we're often massaging uh, the the all of the wrists, the joints, the fingers, the ankles, the feet, uh, the knees. While we're doing all of this, what's happening is that we are literally creating a manual circulation um, system for the body. In other words, many, many times... Um, we will see truly a transformation in the complexion of the deceased individual because, of course, uh, you know, with that sort of ashen gray look that we're all familiar with at the time of death, um, once the blood is able to be um, manually encouraged to move throughout the body, the complexion comes back. Mm. And it's remarkable yeah. to witness that uh, transformation in the coloring of the skin that just happens naturally because we're moving the body so much and we're, we're just creating that, that opportunity for the care of the hands-on touch of the body. Right, right. And what about the cooling? So what is the timing typically when you're working with families um, that you go ahead and have them implement the use of the dry ice? 
Oftentimes, dry ice is something that um, is an individual kind of uh, situation. And what, and what I mean by that is, for example, in the state of Washington, a body can, be, uh, can remain out of refrigeration for up to 24 hours following death before it needs to either be refrigerated or embalmed. Now, um, you know, and obviously each state has their own uh, laws, funeral laws that, that dictate that. But for us, you know, we technically have up to 24 hours before we have to uh, consider, uh, you know, the notion obviously of, of being sure there's dry ice to help to cool the body. That said, um, I will very much recommend to families that if they know from the onset that they are going to want to have a um, uh, a longer period than 24 hours with the body, that, say, for example, a more common vigil time might be three days, that the cooling of the body, the sooner we're able to start cooling the body, uh, the better when we're going to have an extended vigil time of up to three days. Because, of course, naturally, the, you know, the decomposition process does begin. And what we find is that if we wait until the end of that 24-hour period before we then bring in the dry ice, and we still are going to have another two days beyond that for a vigil, oftentimes we begin to see the kind of, um, you know, the kind of issues that we would prefer to not have to have the family experience, you know, be it um, more significant changes in the body, uh, dehydration, um, the sunken eyes, possibly, uh, you know, there might be some purge. Um, uh, certainly the color, uh, the, the loss of color in the skin. And it's, it's just something that we've learned over the years that if we know before we even um, go to see that family immediately following the death that they're going to want a three-day vigil, we're going to bring that dry ice in probably within the first four to six hours after death, ideally. Um, and if that's not possible, given logistics or just the family's desire to have private time before we come to the home, we would often then certainly recommend that they drop the temperature of the room, they open the windows, and just naturally create a, a more cool environment where the body is until we're able to get the dry ice uh, to, the, uh, to the home, and then placing that dry ice under uh, primarily the torso to the hips, because again, Again, this is the viscera of the body. This is the area where we're wanting to keep cool is that, um, that area between the shoulders and the hips. There's really n uh, not a need for dry ice under the limbs, the legs, the arms, the head, um, unless there is potentially uh, some type of like 
cancerous tumor um, on one of those areas of the body, then then we may want to go ahead and, and apply dry ice because tumors, especially that may be close to the surface of the skin, um, maybe have broken through the skin, we're going to want to obviously take care of the, the bandaging just like you would when the patient was still living. Um, and we're also going to want to keep that area very cool because tumors tend to hold a lot of heat. And so that's something that we also will be sure to focus on, you know, in, in the situations where that's uh, a condition we need to worry about. Right. So it sounds like with a, a sacred moment, you typically use dry ice underneath the body. Yes. Okay. Yes, we do. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, and I know there's there's definitely discussions about, you know, is that uh, is it better to be that the dry ice is on top? Is it better under? Um, my personal bias is for it to be under the body um, because I'll tell you that dry ice is cool enough that it permeates through to the you know the upper upper area of the body without an issue um, and the the thing that is really I think important is to be sure that that cooling is um, happening on the underside of the body where um, the the family member is not touching the the loved one's body and getting a response back like oh my gosh this is like this is the the skin and the and the muscle is actually frozen because dry ice will freeze. Right. I mean that is what it does, right? Yeah, it, and it, so it can be less likely to if if the dry ice is in smaller chunks. I know that that we experience that with some of our funeral directors, including Sherry, we're using the cooling blanket where it has to be cut at a at a I guess at a two inch rather than a four inch. Um, oh right. Level. But it does. It, it will. I think some people tend to overuse uh, dry ice and 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 freeze, which isn't necessary. It does require you have to change it more often because smaller pieces of dry ice are going to evaporate. Right. But, uh, I, I, I keep hearing people feeling like, you know, they're, they're, I just get a sense that it's 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 being. Too much of it's being used, and it is freezing more often than it really needs to. Needs to, yeah. And some of that, quite frankly, Joe, for us is also a practical issue um, where the family, um, you know, because, I mean, you know, home funerals are, first of all, not for the faint of heart in terms of supporting a family. And quite frankly, from a business perspective as the owner of a funeral home and as a employer who has to pay my staff to be able to oversee the care of families that are going through a home funeral I've got to pay attention to my costs and and to have staff you know, come out to the family's home on repeated basis. I mean, we make we make one visit uh, each day. You know, typically in throughout a home vigil. My concern with with um, the dry ice being too small uh, is that the dry ice needs to be replaced too too frequently, and many times that's something the family 
isn't comfortable with. And mm-hmm. therefore, we end up having to come back to that family's home to to take care of that. And so, you know, and I mean, I hate to put a, a dollar and cents um, uh, kind of angle on that discussion, but it's it's true. It's the practical reality of what it takes to be able to support some families uh, with home funerals. Because, again, some families are completely comfortable, uh, you know, taking care of, after we've shown them maybe the first time, you know, how we approach using dry ice for the body, um, that they're comfortable, you know, um, replacing that and getting new dry ice on their own. And so, um, you know, so, I mean, everyone has sort of their own approach and their own perspective on it. Um, I'm just uh, recognizing, you know, the reality after having provided services for family, for so many families, um, that we have to be very um, mindful of the the amount of time that we, mm-hmm. you know, are spending on each case because it's yeah. a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. Yeah, I agree. Families do appreciate coming out every day, though. They do. With the home funeral. They, they like that, even if it's for a few minutes, that, that yep. you're checking on them. And it makes Absolutely. them feel more confident, if nothing else, that they're that they're doing the right thing. Now, I know with our work at the council, we've gotten lots of uh, just questions from different funeral directors about liability mm-hmm. with, uh, with home funerals. Now, have you ever either addressed that? Do you have something that you guys use just to, to make sure that a family understands their expectations? Or what are your thoughts on that? Right. Well, we do, uh, you know, we certainly talk about liability in terms of the fact that um, uh, we want families to understand the responsibility that they are accepting in ch- in in making this choice, um, and we're very clear about that responsibility um, when it comes to either the family um using a sacred moment as the funeral home providing um, that service for the family or whether a sacred moment is simply uh, consulting and educating the family and it's the family that directs the funeral, uh, the home funeral. We really um, have parsed out that whole discussion and, and decision process and what we've really come to is uh, the bottom line is whose name's on that death certificate. That's who's right. really responsible. And so a sacred moment, uh, if we're helping a family to the point that they want for us to be uh, the funeral home responsible, um, we will certainly own that responsibility and in that there is an agreement with the family of what their uh, what their role is during that period of time that the body is out of our quote control um, and if it is the family who is choosing on the other side of, of the discussion and and a family chooses instead not to have a sacred moment direct the funeral but for them to direct it and they're just paying us for consultation time um, 
and they're signing uh, in lieu of a funeral director on that death certificate, they have to fully understand what that means and what responsibility and what liability they are taking on um, because they are choosing to direct their own um, their own funeral. And so we we have a very clear conversation with families about that to be sure that they're um, aware of, of what they're taking on. And obviously, if a sacred moment is responsible for the funeral, the home funeral, we are um, taking on um, you know more of more of that responsibility, and therefore we are simply uh, asking for the family's agreement. You know for certain tasks and and making sure that uh, you know they're doing their part to uh, shelter their loved one's remains in the way that we would um, expect and um, and quite frankly we've we you know knock on wood we have never had a problem ever with a family yeah I agree it seems that uh, families end up being very pleased that they've made this choice and certainly, Anytime I've worked with a family and was concerned maybe about the change of the body or the look or, or what were the expectations of the family, um, they were always more pleased um, oh. than I ever yeah. even yeah, was expected. So I think that's pretty probably pretty consistent when someone has chosen this type exactly. of service. Exactly. And again, it's because their expectations are, are absolutely um, in a different level and a different plane than ours. And... Um, and and I just find that they're more accepting of what is and not trying to make it quote perfect um, because quite frankly you know life isn't perfect and and that's okay and death isn't perfect and and so they really do um, uh, tend to be far more comfortable with uh, simply going with what is and 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 things to sort of organically work out uh, rather than there being a, a really sort of rigid idea of what that outcome looks like. They're less attached to that, I guess. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, wonderful. Well, I think we covered um, a lot of things today. Is there anything that you feel sure that we haven't covered that, uh, that funeral directors seem to be concerned about or, or funeral guides as they work with families? Um, you know, I would say more than anything, it's just um, uh, keeping themselves open to the conversation and being aware when families choose this option that it actually is um, a whole lot less scary than they might think. <laughs> Um, and that uh, it's truly, I think, if funeral directors who want to embrace this idea um, truly begin to delve into this a little further and and see the way in which they may be of service to families um, we're, we'll change the the paradigm and and I think that um, my experience certainly has been that many families that choose this option are grateful 
for the experience, like you've mentioned, Sherry, and being able to rely upon their local funeral home to support them in this choice uh, is something we are just going to see more and more of. And so I, I would just encourage funeral directors to um, not um, not shy away and, and instead turn toward and give the families the opportunity to, as I say, opt in for this choice instead of not even being aware that it is a choice. You know, go ahead, put it on your GPL. See if families ask about it and begin to just stick your toe in the water. That right. would be my best advice. <laughs> I, I would 100% have to agree with you because I also feel that uh, funeral directors will find most of the time it will even be for just a few hours. But to offer a family to just even have those few hours um, and to support them um, with that choice um, is such a positive relationship builder between the family and the funeral Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Because a very disarming and, and a very warm relationship when it starts out that way. Absolutely. Well, great. Well, thank you. Thank you again for joining us to talk about home funerals today, um, Char. And um, thank you, for everyone, for uh, for listening to today's segment um, on the Green Bureau Radio Program. For an archive of this program and any of those um, that we have previously recorded, you will find them on funeralradio.com, and you can click there on the Green Burial Radio program icon there. And uh, as always, feel free to visit the Green Burial Council website at www.greenburialcouncil.org. Bye, everybody.